Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Paul Auerbach, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, and a co-founder of the Wilderness Medical Society. He's here to talk about the impact of climate change on human health and the challenges we will face now and in the future, as well as what we might do about it. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about longevity and how it's changing in the United States and around the world. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, and the author of Creativity, Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Can Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. I asked him to go back to 1995, to Toy Story, the very first animated movie entirely created on a computer. I asked him, how much was that a technical breakthrough? And how much was it a matter of Hollywood finally trusting technology? Well, it wasn't Hollywood embracing technology. Uh, What it was was a group of people off to the side, outside of the system, Uh, working for 20 years to put all the pieces together, uh, which were initially largely technical. But there was one exception in that Hollywood community, and that was George Lucas. But he truly was an exception. Uh, And so we were located an hour away from Silicon Valley. We were also an hour plane ride away from Hollywood, where George gave us the support in a fairly unique environment. So in our case, it was a little bit of the technology... There was the storytelling part. There was Steve Jobs being involved with it. And there's a a rather unusual combination, but not coming through the normal course of Hollywood. This is really sort of a unique way of developing story. Yes, there's a different model. In fact, I would say that for the long form of filmmaking today or storytelling, there are three different models. There's the one that you see on television now where, where you know some of these programs are really very good. And you've got story teams and writers that stay together over an extended period of time, which I think adds to the quality. There's the live-action model where groups go off and they, they form to come together to make a, a, a film, but then at the end of the film, they disperse. So you don't have any real sense of community on the film. And there's a more a, a random nature to whether the films are good or not. And, and then at, at Pixar, we came up with our own model which is that the filmmakers all stay together at the studio and form a long-term community, and they are a support and help group for each other as they help each other on on their other films. Uh, And for me, it's a great model. So that Andrew, Pete, or Lee, they'll work on their own films, but they'll spend time on other people's films. And it's the fact that they're supporting each other, which enriches them and, and helps draw people out of getting lost in their own films. It kind of put, makes it a storytelling enterprise, and some of the output along the way happen to be films. Oh, very much so. It's this uh, Storytelling is the way we communicate with each other. And you go right from when you write, read to your children 
It's, of course, movies and television, but it's also news. It's our human way of communicating. And there are ways of, of having the form of communication, but ultimately what you want is to connect with people emotionally in order to really connect. And in fact, one of the issues for us was having succeeded, and, and I would say this is true in Silicon Valley, a lot of these teams, after they succeeded, start to fall apart. So you just think about all these companies, whether they're internet or computer companies, they're very successful, they make a major impact, then something goes wrong. So while they stay together longer, ultimately there are some forces that come in and undo them. And so the central question for us is, if these forces are at play at all times, and I think they are, including here, then how do we pay attention to them so that we can at least address the problems that arise whenever you're doing something new? This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, talks about his only book thus far, Creativity, Inc. In 2018, Ed Catmull retired from Pixar and Disney, and during his tenure, Pixar produced such films as Finding Nemo, Cars, The Incredibles, Brave, Finding Dory, and Coco. His work has been recognized creatively by numerous Academy Awards and technologically by the John Van Neumann Medal. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Paul Auerbach, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine. And with Dr. Jay Lemery, he's written Enviromedics, the Impact of Climate Change on Human Health. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about longevity, what's changing longevity for the average person, and how truly important your zip code is. And now, Dr. Paul Auerbach. Paul, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I wanted to start by asking you about a term that's not in the sort of common parlance, and that is wilderness medicine. What is wilderness medicine, and where is the wilderness these days? Wilderness medicine is the is the study and practice and education of taking care of people in wilderness environments which are generally places that are austere, so limited resources um, when you don't have all of the, the support that you would normally have in an urban environment. So a wilderness can be on a mountain, out at sea, in the desert, and it's also the unique physiology and pathophysiology of those environments. So issues of high altitude, issues of pressure underwater, venomous creatures, uh, search and rescue, and so forth. Now, pathophysiology, I don't think I've ever heard that word before. What does it mean? Physiology is how we live, um, how we breathe, how we function, how we manufacture and consume energy in 
pretty much of a normal state. Pathophysiology is when things become abnormal. So if you are breathing normally, that's your physiology. If you have lung disease of any sort, an infection or asthma, that is a pathophysiological process. I'm sure it comes from some Latin word like pathos. Now, you're an ER doctor. You've taught emergency medicine. But more importantly, in the context of this interview, you're a first responder. And when you do first response, you're not just going outside your door and looking around for problems. Let's start with Haiti. Its current population is 11 million, 80% of which live at or below the poverty line, long history of earthquakes, hurricanes, cholera epidemics, you name it. When did you go to Haiti and what triggered your visit and what did you do when you were there? My first trip to Haiti was in the year 2010, immediately after the earthquake. We were called to action by a non-governmental organization, International Medical Corps, that requested a team of doctor and nurses from Stanford. And so we responded. Uh, we got in approximately three and a half days after the earthquake, and we became one of the earliest groups in as first responders to try and help the people uh, through that catastrophic event. What was it like? Tell us about that. It was devastating. Um, I hope that you and others never have to see anything like that. It was the underworld. It was hell. Uh, many people had been killed. Many people were, were injured. Uh, there was uh, mass devastation of buildings, uh, loss of human life, um, chaotic. It was a, a full-on disaster in every sense of the word. We got in a few days after the earthquake and were directed to a place called the University Hospital, which was really a university hospital in name only. It was a rough place before the earthquake, and it had been devastated um, by the earth shaking. So it became a congregation point for uh, people who were ill, uh, injured, uh, crushed, and it had suffered its own tragedy. The nursing school uh, on that campus had collapsed. There were many dead nurses underneath it. Many of the staff had uh, left the facility to go take care of their loved ones. Uh, so we faced approximately a 1,000 critical patients. We were a team of about 10 providers. Uh, there were some doctors on site who had gotten there a bit quicker or had been in Haiti um, who were performing life-saving maneuvers, we faced the task of trying to assess the situation with very limited resources. In fact, we ran out of the supplies that we brought in the first six hours and just did our best to get our handle on it, get people triaged to the people that we could save, uh, the people that we couldn't, um, those that we could delay in care, and to practice what has been called now disaster medicine. Of course, this frames for me now uh, this concept of a wilderness 
it is a wilderness there. It, it was a wilderness. It was the most austere setting one can imagine. We faced the sickest patients we would ever see in our lives uh, in the number of thousands, and we had very limited resources. So a wilderness can be on a mountaintop, um, or it can be in an urban setting if you um, are alone um, and have very limited resources. And here I think of these this group of 10 professionals who normally are operating in the general operations sense of the term at Stanford Medical Center. There's not a, a bigger difference in what is available to you than those that broad spectrum there. Yeah, there was a reentry phenomenon that we had afterwards because we went from a place where we had uh, very little support um, until the military showed up. They were spectacular. And, of course, rescuers from all around the world came in, and they were remarkable as well. We went from that environment uh, back into a place like Stanford where you have everything you need um, all of the time. Uh, and so there was definitely a reentry uh, phenomenon uh, in which we had to become accustomed to practicing uh, medicine with CT scanners and MRI machines and operating rooms and consultants um, from a place where we had uh, none of that. Let's run this test. Never got said in Haiti. That's correct. Um, at the very end of our deployment, after about two weeks, uh, we were able to put together a functional laboratory with point-of-care testing. We had a small blood bank. Uh, we had one x-ray machine, so you can imagine the backup uh, was pretty extraordinary. Uh, but it, it was a totally different type of medicine. We did the best we could do under those circumstances. You were also a first responder in Nepal. Same question. What triggered your visit, and what did you do there? I had a long-standing relationship with Nepal because of my wilderness medicine activities. Uh, we had been going there for years to uh, trek to do some high-altitude research along the way and at Everest Base Camp. And I had also had the good fortune to be invited in to help create uh, the fledgling Nepal Ambulance Service, so to create the first uh, municipal ambulance service in Kathmandu. So I was familiar with the country. When the earthquake happened, it was it was a no-brainer. We, we needed to go. We had many friends over there. Um, we needed to support them. And having had the experience in Haiti, there were some things that I had learned that I hoped to apply to make the situation better over there. How would you compare the two experiences? There were similarities and differences. The human suffering, of course, was similar. Uh, the numbers of people killed and injured were smaller in Nepal, but for those people affected, the tragedy was, was the same. There were a couple major differences. Uh, Nepal had a functioning medical system that withstood the earthquake. There were hospitals that remained standing, all of the critically ill and injured patients could be cared for by the system that was in place. The places that were not 
well served were the surrounding rural communities very high up in the hills and in some cases in the mountains where access was very difficult. So geographically, it was different. Uh, It had much better community response. There was um, a small EMS service that was functioning. So it was much better organized um, and therefore it was much more efficient in terms of the response. It all depends on what the social structures are and as well as what the catastrophe is as to what's possible. The name of the game is preparation. Um, We hope that it never happens, but inevitably it does. And that's why we learn and we train and we try and put an infrastructure in place that will be ready to deal with disasters when they occur. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Paul Auerbach, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine. You might know him as one of the founders of the Wilderness Medical Society, the editor of the medical textbook Medical Wilderness, and with Dr. Jay Lemery, the co-author of Enviromedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health. Now, I have to say, for first responders, you know, we have to find qualified first responders to serve. But over time, it also requires equipping them with technology and technology that can improve with what we ha- what capabilities we can offer them. Okay, so what is U.S. patent number 8061293 Avalanche Rescue Device? That's something that I'm still working on. I... Uh, have an interest in the outdoors and therefore a, a great interest in safety. That is a, a method to find someone who is buried in a snow avalanche. So instead of poking from above, which is the normal method to find someone, it's actually a new design that would enable someone who's buried in the snow to Uh, shoot a small heated stream of water up through the snow, create a big ink stain, and be able to dig down following the color and get to them uh, very quickly. So routinely, hikers or skiers or people in an area like that could have something like that in their body. And if they were able to move at all, they could do that? Well, they wouldn't have to necessarily be able to move. Um, You'd have to put one or two on the person, and then there would uh, be a triggering device, uh, whether it's something that they could bite on that would be part of a mouthpiece in their helmet, or it would be pressure sensitive, or it could be triggered from above with a radio uh, signal. Uh, Something would have to set it off, uh, and you'd need more than one shot on goal because... Uh, a stream of heated water wouldn't be able to go through ice chunks or if it was positioned underneath your body in such a way that the stream would have to go through you to get to the surface, that wouldn't work. So I could envision having one or more of these attached to you or your snowmobile uh, or your helmet, and if you were buried, um, triggering it. Uh, The Next step in the development of this will be taking it from its current size, uh, which is the size of a small toaster oven, to something miniaturized, which could be done uh, so that someone could wear it on their person and have it be unobtrusive, sort of like a GoPro uh, that people wear on top of their helmets uh, to uh, 
take in the scenery when they're skiing. Well, I got to say, Paul, you're all over the place and you never stop thinking. You're amazing. <laughs> uh, that would be argued by some people. It's I've been very fortunate. Um, everything that I've been able to accomplish in my life uh, has been done with great teams. Um, there are always um, young and old people alike uh, who are innovative and want to make the world a better place, and I'm just lucky to be around many of them. Well, we've talked about regional disasters or specific disasters. Let's talk about global disaster. Let's talk about climate change. Climate change is is here. It's happening. Um, I'm not a climate scientist, but I believe what I read. And it's a challenge that is frightening and massive, and we have to be up to solving it. Um, equilibrium on this planet will be reached at some point. It's just what sort of life forms will be left when we get there. And what do we mean by equilibrium? Well, equilibrium is that we're we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We're changing uh, global temperatures. We're changing uh, features of acidification and temperature in the oceans. Uh, there are there are many many things that are happening to the planet, and they're progressing. And the progression is accelerating. And they all have human health effects. So. Those of us that are in the health profession need to begin to emphasize that so that we can have the discussion be related to human health. Now, climate change is often talked about in terms of sea level rise, temperature increases, ice melting. But if we look at it in terms of humanity, the people, how do we see the symptoms of climate change? You know, what about the humans that will tell us that climate change is real? If we look at the medical impacts of climate change, the list is pretty long. Uh, running it, uh, we can recognize it in changing patterns of disease, um, both infectious and non-infectious. And what I mean by that is uh, taking an example, if global warming continues and we have more frequent extreme heat events, so heat waves, that puts people who are vulnerable to cardiovascular disease, uh, strokes and heart attacks at increased risks. For young people, they're also exposed to that heat and their systems can't tolerate it. And so that might be manifested with kidney disease. As temperatures go up and insects and ticks and other creatures follow those warm temperatures, some of them will carry diseases with them. So we know that malaria is caused by insect bites. Um, dengue is caused um, by mosquito bites. Uh, Lyme disease is caused by tick bites. And if the geographic ranges of those creatures change, so will the patterns of disease. If we see more warming and water insecurity and food insecurity, we're going to see crops lose their nutrition value, and that's going to cause vulnerable populations, in particular people that have 
disadvantages from a socioeconomic perspective, and particularly young people having situations of malnutrition. Extreme weather events are obvious. Uh, uh, Hurricanes, floods, um, heat waves, um, big storms um, cause human injuries and illnesses. If the oceans continue to warm, then we're going to see massive die-offs of coral, which provide nutritive value and environments for a lot of the seafood that we count on. In fact, I've seen an estimate that by the year 2050, the biomass of plastic in the oceans might exceed the biomass of fish. That's quite an astounding prediction. And if people can't eat and find shelter because of climate change, there there will be, as there already are, mass migrations. And those lead to conflict. They lead to mental health issues. And so putting the face of human health and the impact on all living forms on Earth on the face of climate change, I think is very important. It occurs to me that we're pretty used to migrations because of war. It's like people pick up and have to leave for their own survival. And we've seen what that's done, for instance, in in Europe and Africa and the Middle East uh, in recent years uh, and what an issue it is in the United States. It's another thing to see that people have to do it simply to, to live because of the changes that are brought about by climate change. I think you've hit upon a great analogy for how we should view this situation. We should view it as an enormous conflict that we need to solve. The conflict is not between nations and peoples. It's between humanity and the planet. Uh, We just can't continue to erode our natural resources, put toxic chemicals, particulate matter, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere without paying a price for that. And so if we care about the future, we need to solve for this. And we don't have the luxury of centuries to do it because it's a continuum that we're already on. And so we need to start fixing this problem right now. Now, we've talked about first responders to regional disaster, you know, flying them in. And we've also talked about preparedness. I mean, must we become sort of global first responders? I think we do. Uh, I think we have to begin to have a mindset that we're going to need to take care of ourselves. Our first response capabilities are limited. We can handle a few disasters at a time, but when we start having hundreds of fires simultaneously at the same time that we have hurricanes, at the same time that we have floods, and at the same time that we have heat waves, coupled with mass migration, there just aren't enough firefighters, EMTs, and federal response units to go around. 
I've been speaking with Stanford School of Medicine Professor Emeritus Dr. Paul Auerbach, the co-author of Enviromedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word and on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as in other podcast syndication outlets. And in the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will be talking about longevity and not just anybody's, yours. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Paul Auerbeck, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, and the co-author of Enviromedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health. In San Francisco, it's been interesting because we have been working on earthquake plans for years. And yet last year, with all the fires in Northern California and just by luck the way the winds were blowing, for a period of two days, we had the worst air in the world. I was told this by the weather company, by the way. Um, And yes, we had to shut down businesses, universities. People had to either leave town or not be in their homes. Um, It was a really... It was a really amazing time because we thought we were so ready for a disaster. It just wasn't the disaster we had planned on. We have to prepare for these sorts of events now. Um, Wildfires are the obvious situation in the western states um, and in parts of Canada, um, but also globally, um, Indonesia, Australia, uh, the fires are everywhere. And I want people not only to be cautious and and to become active, but to understand that there's hope in all of this. So if you listen to what we've been saying, um, it can be depressing. 
Uh, it can say, so what can I do? Um, it's inevitable. Well, it's not inevitable. It's inevitable if we don't do anything about it. But uh, we have the technological capability, um, if we have the will, to begin to address these issues and to try and turn things around. In an earlier conversation with you, you mentioned to me that Senator Kamala Harris introduced a bill to send money to municipalities for preparedness. I I applaud that gesture. Uh, we need to do everything we can to support citizens, municipalities, regions, states um, to be prepared. Uh, preparedness isn't sexy. Um, I've, I've learned from working in the emergency department for more than 40 years that every story of of an injury or illness begins with how someone got there in the first place. And much of what happens to people can be prevented. So the concept of getting communities prepared by developing uh, evacuation routes that everybody is familiar with by not building new structures at the wildland urban interface, by having defensible space around homes, um, by having energy grids um, that are uh, uh, built in such a way that they don't uh, pose a risk. All of that is important um, in getting prepared to try and diminish the risk of wildfires. You point out that we've already solved or are capable of solving a number of serious problems, such as concussions or vaping or these kinds of things, any number of things that we're addressing as a society. Um, and yet so many of our problems, including the ones we've been talking about during this interview, are stymied by economics. Economics um, are at the root cause of most of the lack of progress that we see in major social issues and particularly as they relate to disasters. Um, it's not a, a zero-sum game. Uh, we will have to make changes if we want to improve the environmental situation of the planet. We're in uncharted territory, so this is not laying blame or accusing anyone of intentionally doing something that would be harmful to another person. We've developed a society that is predicated on enormous energy consumption, and most of that energy consumption has to do with burning fossil fuels and therefore putting pollutants into the atmosphere. If we want to change that situation, we have to find alternative energy sources. Uh, we have to reconfigure um, some of the motives that drive us to consume that energy and recognize that uh, life will be somewhat different. I'm firmly convinced that we can do that with uh, minimal uh, political and economic disruption if we have a community and a strategy um, that is 
driven by a culture of cooperation and a unity of purpose. I'm not Pollyanna. Um, I think we have to do this. Uh, We've done it before in times of conflict. We've done it before facing infectious diseases. Uh, Mankind is capable of cooperating. Um, this is a circumstance now that's unprecedented and where we we have to develop that culture. You know, I'm not sure everybody understands the term zero-sum game. What does that mean? Well, zero-sum game means that if you take something away from one person, um, you put something back that balances out the loss. So the gains are equivalent to the losses. And that's how we like to think of negotiations so that it's it's a win-win always. Uh, what I meant by saying that it's not a zero-sum game is that there may be some economic losers in this process. We we may not be able to solve this problem simply by assigning carbon credits uh, to people who do the right thing in terms of the environment. Uh, we let's look at uh, the the industries that uh, burn coal um, and put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. If the only way that energy can be provided in the short term for those industries is to do that, they may have to make some drastic changes for the greater good. And then we should seek the best way we can to support them and make them economically whole. But it might not be a perfect solution. Uh, Those are decisions that will be made by um, governments um, as they propose regulations and how to assign monetary value to the sacrifices that people will have to make for the greater good. I always like to think about how we'll take great swaths of land and cut down all the trees. And then after that, we say, every time we cut down a tree, we're going to plant a tree. It's like, wait a minute, what about... What about all those other trees? <laughs> you know? Oh, no. So we have some catch-up to do. Not all of it is our fault, but it's like we have to kind of understand, not that we have to return everything exactly the way it was, but there may be more to pay than just what we're doing today. I, I, I agree with that, Moira. I want to say again that we're in uncharted territory. Uh I don't think that we have perfect predictive capabilities. Um, there are those who predicted many years ago that we would come in this uh, current situation, but we've never had a future that looks at 9 billion people on the planet. Uh, we've never had uh, such rapid economic uh, growth. Uh, at the same time that we have so many of our resources um, dealing with um, conflicts that have nothing to do at all with our current environmental situation. 
So we have to take account of what's important um, for people on this planet. What do we need to do to preserve life forms? What do we have to do to save our oceans? I don't see any downside to being conservationists uh, unless can demonstrate to me that by doing the things that we need to uh, reverse global warming, we are doing harm um, to people in a way that would exceed the benefits we would accrue by taking a path of of climate smart behavior. Another challenge to climate change and dealing with its effects is disinformation, intentional disinformation. I don't know how we can control for that. I mean, can we create clearly validated sources of information? This, of course, goes well beyond climate change. But in the climate change case, let's let's just talk about that. We have to start um, trusting our scientists um, in a fashion that's greater than we currently do. Uh, people like to win arguments. Um, we lived through this with big tobacco. Um, and I think that serves as a great example of how uh, data can be uh, used to support uh, positions that aren't necessarily in the best interest of, of public health. We absolutely need uh, trusted sources, and we need people to interpret science and give us um, the best uh, the best information that we can possibly have. So what do we do to control disinformation? Um, that is a bigger topic. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I can agree that we need exquisitely accurate information. Um, and we need to go with reasonable consensus. Uh, people argue about everything. And that's fine. We need to hear all sides. But at the end of the day, uh, the medical data that we're generating leads us to believe that we've got uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, public health crisis in the history of humanity. And we, and we have to face this one head on. How do we as members of society, everyday people, I mean, what can we do about these times of climate change. I mean, we can recycle, reuse, minimize our impact. But I'm talking about how do we make a, an impact on a larger basis? Do we And do we have a responsibility to? Personally, I think we have a responsibility to for our children, for our children's children, for generations to come. Um, I believe in social justice. Um, I believe that we have a responsibility to make the world a better place, and certainly, at the very least, to not make it a worse place. Uh, what can people do on an individual basis? I think they can start by being as educated as they possibly can about all aspects of climate change. Make the personal changes that allow them to live their lives in a a peaceful and whole fashion, but that are climate smart. Um, if you believe, for instance, that uh, the production of meat for human consumption contributes significantly 
to adverse climate effects, you can take meat out of your diet. Um, if you believe that flying in airplanes contributes to a great extent uh, by virtue of the exhaust from the airplanes to bad climate changes, you can try and limit your air travel. You can see immediately how this wouldn't be the favorite thing for the airline industry. Um, and that's where it may not be a zero-sum game. It may be that the airline industry will have to see fewer flights and less profits uh, and be willing to accept that as a sacrifice for that industry towards controlling climate change. Um, other things that people can do is to be as climate smart um, as they can in terms of energy consumption, in terms of how they live their lives, in terms of how they educate their children, um, in terms of um, what uh, support they give for different uh, government constituencies. We need to do everything we can to support our first responders because until we get a hold on this, uh, we're going to be counting on them a lot. Um, to both save us and protect us. And we should show some compassion for the people that are trying to do the right thing. Uh, it, I think we've witnessed this um, extensively in California as we've seen energy shutdowns uh, in an attempt to limit fires uh, there's no winner on the part of the energy industry in that uh, if they if they don't make the attempt and fires start, then they're blamed. And if they shut down the energy and people have to adapt to that, uh, they're criticized. They can't win. They're just trying to do the best they can. We talked earlier about the Wilderness Medicine textbook now in its seventh edition, two volumes, 2,800 pages long. Um, and I, what I'd like to do is is to also talk about the Wilderness Medical Society. The Wilderness Medical Society is a group of medical professionals, um, doctors, nurses, technicians, and increasingly laypersons who are interested in wilderness medicine. So they're interested in practicing medicine, injury prevention, uh, and the science that underlies that in the outdoors, in wilderness settings. But it's also become a great supporting agency for the military that faces austere circumstances, for people that do global humanitarian relief or disaster response, uh, because it really emphasizes improvisation and being able to make do with what you have um, outside of your normal urban uh, supportive environment. So basically everybody. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that it's everybody. It's uh, a specialty in medicine now. Uh, uh, it's incredibly interesting. Uh, it's a way to combine your passion uh, for the outdoors and for the wilderness uh, with your profession. So, and it crosses over every specialty. 
so it's not confined to emergency medicine. Uh, if if you name a specialty, I can tell you how it's relevant um, and how they contribute uh, to wilderness medicine. Um, uh, emergency medicine is obvious. Orthopedics uh, deals with fractures and all of the orthopedic problems, bone problems that you face outdoors. Dermatologists, um, there are plenty of rashes to to go around. Um, psychiatry, um, psychology, the the mental health aspects of being by yourself, teamwork, uh, and uh, so there's. It has given me great joy in my career. I was just in the right place at the right time. Well, I have to say, listening to you, uh, each of us should be aware that no matter where we are, we don't have to move an inch. It could suddenly become a wilderness. Absolutely. Um, if you're, if you have a fire uh, in a neighborhood uh, and you don't have someone to help you, you are in the wilderness. Uh, Your wilderness can be a park in a city, um, or it can be 100 miles into the backcountry in a national park. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. I I hope you'll come back and see us again. I've enjoyed speaking with you, and I hope that people take away from this that there's there's hope uh, for all of these things uh, that we can come together uh, and face our issues and uh, work hard and make the world a better place. My guest today is Dr. Paul Auerbach, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, and co-author of Enviromedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. Information regarding the Wilderness Medical Society can be found at wms.org. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. For Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft, it isn't just about addressing whatever health problem comes your way. It's also about how long you can live. Well, Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation. Great to be here. Now, let me ask you, am I going to live any longer than I did the last time you were here? <laughs> I think the longer you live, the longer you will live, right? If you're a, wow. <laughs> a 90-year-old, uh, you often have several years ahead of you if you've made it to that point. Uh, in good oh, really? So if you can get there, then you can really get some get some running around. Exactly. So sadly, here in the United States, the average life expectancy has recently gone down, partly related to the opiate epidemic and high rates of suicide. So we have a, a long way to go here in the United States, where some of the listeners are, where we spend the most money per person to really bring us to true health care, which optimizes health span rather than our sort of sick care model, which pays for a disease after it's happened. So I think about living a long, 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 healthy life. Here, many people want to live forever, which is still a very, very long time. We need to think uh, proactively about how to um, optimize that and to personalize our longevity, let's say regimens, um, so they match you and who you are and what risks you might have. You can live a long time and not enjoy it. Yeah, and I think the idea about health span, you know, making 100 the new 60 is to make you feel like 50 or 60 when you're 100, not 
quote unquote infirm and not able to, not able to think well and communicate and feed yourself. So I think we need to emphasize the, the quality aspects of life rather than just the, the number of years. Now, I heard this term, and maybe you can explain it to me. I've heard this term called blue zones. What are they? Right. That was um, sort of popularized by Dan Butner, who's a amazing uh, National Geographic fellow and has written books about blue zones and studied parts of the world where uh, individuals and cultures and societies seem to live longer, healthier lives. And while that's important is we can learn some lessons from, let's say, the island of Okinawa, where they live well into their 90s. They have good cardiovascular health and mental health. Uh, and it seems that it's dependent on several factors which cross different blue zones. Number one, diet is super important. You can take that same Japanese-type population, bring them to the U.S., they start eating same, differently. Same, same profile as the, as the U.S. people. Exactly. Uh, it seems to be blend very importantly with a sense of purpose. So the idea that uh, if you live with a sense of purpose and connection to your society and you feel as are as their elders are more valued, uh, that can play a, lo- a, a, a role. Yeah. Um, it certainly uh, also plays a role in, you know, simple movement and exercise. And again, back to diet, you know, no, our number one drug is what we eat and drink. And uh, Dan Butner and colleagues have been extending this blue zone uh, idea to bring it to places in, let's say, United States, where the lessons there can come to certain uh, towns and cities and, and hopefully extend health span and longevity there. We often talk about the kind of social determinants of health, meaning your zip code is more important than your genetic code and, and how long you're going to live. That's very relevant here, particularly in our urban centers. You might be in the rich part of town and live 10 or more years on average than the folks just one zip code away. So it's elements like our social connection, ac- uh, access to clean water, food, vaccination that are sometimes much more impactful and will lead to much longer lives than waiting for the magic stem cell therapy or gene therapy or wearable robotic to get us uh, another 10 years of, of life. I love these people who are buying houses and they, they always want to know, now, how are the schools and how are this? It's like, and what's the health number for this zip code? <laughs> right. Could you know, is it walkable? Could right. Is there a, a fresh farmer's market down the street? Uh, what's the air quality? You know, cities like Beijing, uh, if you go up there now, have a much higher pollution index and your risk of uh, getting uh, cardiac and lung issues are much higher depending on exactly where you've grown up. And the water. And the water. I and mean, Flint, water. Michigan is an extreme example. But again, we need to pay attention to the to the basics. One example is, you know, what do you give children early in life when they're, let's say, six months of age, start to eat solid foods? If you give them whole grain type foods, that changes their microbiome, the epigenetics of their gut, and dramatically lowers risk of obesity and, and diabetes downstream. So simple measures done early in life, and I'm a pediatrician, I'm interested in, in pediatric uh, interventions, can have a big impact downstream. But what's interesting now is, of course, you want to do the preventative things, all the sort of basics we've touched on, but some folks are still going to get disease. And our number one killer across the planet is pretty much uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and strokes, so the leading cause of death in most low and middle income countries. And an interesting study uh, came out at the end of the summer of, of 2019, looking at a uh, cardiovascular polypill, giving uh, folks, patients or individuals before they really become patients uh, who, uh, who'd had a prior heart attack or stroke, or those who had a high risk, a combined medication that had uh, a statin, uh, blood pressure medication, uh, aspirin, which is still debatable to its utility. So you can imagine giving folks a longevity pill that, given their risk factors, may help extend their lives and prevent that next heart attack or stroke. 
or prevent someone who's generally healthy but has risk factors from developing certain diseases. And to make that into an in this case, an individual poly pill, they're all designed the same, but you can imagine in the near future where we have the Moira pill, the Daniel pill, that's based on who we genetics. are. Right. Yeah. Who we are. Um, I'm actually, you know, developing a technology to do that called Intellimedicine, where you'll potentially even 3D print your personalized poly pill every day based on your genomics, your renal function, your weight, and your risk factors. So this study uh, that was published out of work in many parts of the world, including uh, Iran, is quite compelling. But it's this idea that we may end up taking a medication to extend our life. On the more extreme end, some folks are experimenting with off-target, off-label uses of drugs like metformin, a very common drug for diabetes, which seems to lengthen the life of diabetics, but potentially those who are non-diabetic as well. And there's an ongoing trial right now where individuals who are healthy are taking metformin every day, which will probably overall lower their average blood sugar and seem to have a whole range of downstream effects. Another example would be a drug called rapamycin, which is used often for immunosuppression in, let's say, organ transplant patients. And um, rapamycin is interesting because it has a lot of biologic effects. And part of extending our health span and lifespan is understanding the biology of aging. Certainly, you know, not breaking your hip, not uh, having a high blood pressure is important. But if we can understand that biologic clock and rapamycin in mouse studies, seems to increase lifespan by uh, 7% or more, is now being uh, integrated into some human trials where it seems to play a role in improving the immune function of, of older individuals. So we may start to see more and more ways to sort of biologically tune our, our biological system so that we live longer, healthier lives um, with the understanding of biology meets, meets, uh, meets technology. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. See you next time. Thanks. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.